Hello and welcome to Python Bytes, where we deliver Python news and headlines directly to your earbuds. This is episode 297, recorded August 16, 2022, and I am Brian Aachen. I'm Michael Kennedy. Um, it's good to good to be back and be with you, Michael. Yeah, it's, it's great to be back. Not in the usual location today. You may hear some nature sounds from my end. I apologize if animals go crazy, but there's construction, which is guaranteed to be a problem in my office. So I'm, I'm sitting in the backyard. We'll see how that goes. Yeah, for Pretty people quiet. that um, uh, listening of the podcast, the live stream people get to see his lovely view from his backyard. Some nice <laughs> trees. Yeah, so. big, big trees. It's all it's all Oregon backyard here. <laughs> nice. <laughs> but also, I also want to say this episode is brought to you by IRL podcast from Mozilla. So we'll tell you more about that later. But thanks to Mozilla and the IRL podcast for supporting yeah. the show. Thank you. Let's talk about writing code. By not writing code. Does that sound like a good idea? Well, okay. <laughs> not in the low code, no code sense. There's actually some pretty cool tools in that space, but that's not what I'm talking about. Imagine, Brian, somebody says, we used to be a .NET shop and we have this huge database and all of our code to talk to it is in some other language or it's Ruby or it's Java or whatever. It's not Python. And you decide the best way to talk to this database is with some flavor of SQL Alchemy. SQL Alchemy straight, or if you prefer, you could have it with data classes, or you could even mix in a little sprinkling of SQL model if you're doing async and fast API and Pydantic and it, whatever choice you want to make from that perspective. If you're looking at a database with 150 tables and all sorts of gnarly relationships, you might say, well, I'm going to have to spend the next week planning out how to model those out so I get them to exactly match the database. Is it a varchar? Is it a varchar with a limit like varchar 10 or, you know, what? That doesn't sound fun, does it? No, no. Not, not. I mean, at least for me, maybe some people that's a special kind of fun for them. But Josh Thurston sent over this project called SQL A for SQL Alchemy Code Gen. So I'm taking that Hugh doesn't think it sounds like fun. I certainly don't think that it does either. So people wow. should check this out. It's It looks really cool. And... What you do is it's it's an automatic model generator for SQL Alchemy. It's, what does it generate it from? So what you do is you go through and you point it at some database. Okay. You just say SQL A code gen and you give it your connection string. For example, Postgres SQL colon triple slash some database connection string. And then magic happens and you have a whole bunch of Python classes that are attempted to look handwritten. Yeah. So instead of taking all your time like a week to model out the database and the relationships and all that stuff in Python, you run this one command line thing and then you have all the classes and then you can tweak them a tiny bit if you see fit. Okay. So this is, okay. You probably said this and I missed it, but you, so you already have data in a database and you're trying to hook up an application to it or something. Yeah. Yeah. Which is why okay. one of my theoretical, theoretical example, I've have a database, I have code that talks to it, but it's not Python. And so there's not really something to work from. But I've got a really complicated database that's been around for a while. It doesn't have to be complicated, but the more gnarly the database, the more you will appreciate this tool making, uh, you know, doing it for you. I think I have this situation. I okay. totally want to use this. Yeah. 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 So it does a bunch of uh, uh, neat things. It's written to read the structure of an existing database and generate the appropriate SQL alchemy model code using the declarative style if possible. So deriving from SQL alchemy declarative base. It's also, there was some other tool called SQL Autocode, which apparently has some limitations, such as, for example, it doesn't support Python 3. 
or recent versions of SQL Alchemy. That seems like a pretty large limitation, but whatever. <laughs> so this supports uh, the newest version. It produces PEP8 compliant code, tries to make it look like you're uh, writing code by hand so it doesn't look auto-generated. It autom automatically detects join table inheritance and all kinds of things. So if I scroll down here, it's got these different generators. So you can generate table objects for people who don't want to use the ORM because SQL Alchemy has these two flavors, like a low level, slightly above just raw SQL, and then yeah. the ORM, which is the one that I use all the time. By default, it uses the ORM one, but you can also use, like I said, data classes, which is pretty excellent, yeah. instead of, uh, you know, in case that's what you want your code to look like. Or even better than that, you can use SQL model models for using SQL model, which is the project, I'm sure we've discussed it before, by um, Sebastian. It's based on Pydantic and async, but then it's built really on top of SQL Alchemy. So if you're looking to do the newer version of that, you could get this. By the way, just thinking about it while I'm looking at this, maybe I have actually a SQL Alchemy generated database, but it's written in the older style of SQL Alchemy oh, and yeah. it's not using SQL model. And I want to just upgrade to SQL model. You might be able to use the database to just go rewrite it for me again. But in this in this flavor, you know, or use it to generate the data class version. That actually looks pretty cool. Or do all of them and look at it and see which one you looks looks like it's more fun to maintain. Yeah, exactly. So there's a whole bunch of options and stuff that you can use, but you can basically pass a pass a bunch of command line arguments and stuff to change how it works. Cool. Like uh change how it names objects, uh or change how it names fields, et cetera, et cetera. People, if they really want to look into it and use it, I think they all got the idea from this. Okay, cool. What do you think? Nice. Sound cool? Yeah, yeah, looks really cool. Yeah, anytime you've got a database, they're so hard to model because you've got to get the SQL Alchemy code to match it just right or it won't work at all. And yet, yeah. you know, do you really want to do that by, by hand? No, I don't. And so uh, SQL A code gen. Thanks, Josh. Well, I'm going to talk about package. I've been, my headspace is in packaging lately because I'm, I'm uh, preparing a talk next month and um and it's gonna have some packaging stuff in it so this is really exciting with i heard from uh juan luis cano rodriguez rodriguez sorry setup tool 664.00 is out and it ships with pep 660 editable installs so this the the big headline is not that although that's really cool it's that most projects don't need a setup.py or a setup.cfg anymore um those those can be gone so and not that setup.py was evil but it kind of was evil because what it does is it runs python runs python while you install something like just when used normally it's fine when yeah. uh, but it has this tremendous gaping hole for abusing things at different levels yeah and the the okay so the the caveat on this is the reason why it has that is sometimes it goes out and compiles stuff if it's not just pure Python stuff, but you don't need that for that. You, you, a lot of projects, most projects don't need that anymore because they're not really compiling stuff. They're on during pip install. They're, they're compiling stuff ahead of time and they have their separate wheels for different architectures. So I like that model better. Uh, so anyway, the, I'm like pretty excited about this. So there's a, uh, so yeah, congrats to the PyPA for getting that done. We've got, um, there's an article called Development Mode Editable Installs. So uh, here you've got um, pip install editable uh, that works with setup tools uh, without a setup.py. Uh, used to have, oh, awesome. have to have a shim. 
So everything can be in pipeproject.toml now. And, uh, and so one of the cool things, and I actually discovered this also at the same time I was researching packaging stuff. Uh, the PyPA has this really cool guide packaging Python projects. And they tr- what's neat is they keep it up to date um, fairly well. And this whole tutorial, it's a, a simple, so you got a simple Python project and you want to try to learn how to package. Um, they have this, this page here. It's nice. There's no mention of setup.py or setup.cfg. It's all pyproject.toml. Oh, wow. So, That's yeah. awesome. Um, Here's how you do it. And you don't even talk about the, the older, more yep. troublesome way. Yeah. yeah. And since setup tools and pip are not part of Python proper, they're separate things. Well, I mean, you get pip when you when you download Python, but you get a version and you usually upgrade anyway. Um, but setup tools is separate. Uh, so they can move at a faster pace than uh, Python itself. So, oh, right. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Excellent. Well, this is great news. Uh, anything that makes the supply chain side of Python stronger is yeah. good. Yep. Indeed. Well, before we move on to the next thing, Brian, let me tell you about our sponsor. All right. So this episode of Python Bytes is brought to you by the IRL podcast, an original podcast from Mozilla. If you're like me and Brian, we care about ideas behind technology, not just the tech itself. So we know that tech has an enormous influence on society. Many of these effects are hugely beneficial. Just think about carrying all of the world's information in our pockets sort of thing. But other tech influences can have negative effects. And I really appreciate that Mozilla is always on the lookout for and working to mitigate negative influences of tech on all of us, all, all the tracking stuff they're doing, but a bunch of awareness things as well. And so if these ideas resonate with you, you should definitely check out the IRL podcast. It's hosted by Bridget Todd. And this season is very much in the focus of Python. It's AI in real life. So who can AI, who can AI help? Who can it harm? The show features fascinating conversations with people who are working on building more trustworthy AI. For example, there's an episode about how our world is mapped with AI, and it's the data that's missing from those maps that tells as much of the story as the maps themselves. Another one's about gig workers and how they're pushing back on algorithms to create a better working style. And for political junkies, there's an episode about how that uh, the role of AI plays when it comes to spreading disinformation about elections. Obviously, huge concern as uh, just across the world for all the democracies. I also just listened to the tech we won't build, which will ex- which explores when developers and data scientists should consider pushing back on projects that can be harmful to society, even though you know the machine learning can easily be turned on them. If this sounds interesting, try an episode for yourself. Just check out, uh, just search for IRL in your podcast player or visit pythonbytes.fm/irl. The link is in your podcast player show notes. Thank you so much to IRL and Mozilla for supporting the show. I've been listening to it. It's a really great show too. Yeah, yeah, I've, I I enjoy it as well. It's it's not super, super technical where it's all about APIs and stuff. You can kind of just kick back and enjoy it. Not like this podcast where we're super no. technical. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, we talk about a bunch of technical things. Sometimes not too deeply, huh? Oh, I like it. I like our level. Yeah, I do too. I do too. Before we get on to the next topic, I just want to do a quick uh, audience comment from Anna here. It says, hello from London, UK. SQL Code Gen sounds like it could save a lot of headaches. Yeah, I think it's going to be great. And feedback for the tutorial that you highlighted, Brian, on python.org. Yep. Henry Schreiner says, it took around six months for my rewrite of that page to get accepted. Well, thank you for all the hard work, Henry. That's awesome. It, great job. It's, uh, it looks great. So Yeah, very, very cool. Previously, I had talked about async cache. Remember that? 
where it's like the Funk Tools LRU cache, but a little bit more. Uh, however, you can apply it to async methods. Owen Lamont said, you may also be interested in AIO cache. What this one does is this lets you use proper distributed backends for caching. So for example, if you're on a web app, you might have five, six, 10, maybe many more worker processes, either on one machine using the supervisor mode of like Gunicorn, or it could be even across different computers. If you're using that in-memory version of cache, every time the request goes to a different part of your site or different runtime, uh, different process running your site, you've got to recompute it, right? Well, this yeah. one also supports Redis and Memcached. Oh, sweet. Or Memcached D. And it has a common API across all of them, which is pretty fantastic. And they're all async and awaitable, which is cool. So it aims for simplicity rather than trying to highlight all the nuances of that's particular, say, to Redis versus the others. So it has an add, a get, a set, a multi-get if you need to say, give me the values corresponding to these four IDs or does this thing mm -hmm. exist or not? Delete, clear, even increment a value, like how many people view this page? Increment that in the cache. And it's shared across, like I said, 10 worker processes across machines instantly. How cool is that's that? That's pretty cool. Yeah, so super easy to work with. Uh, you can install it, but then you should also reference probably the, the specialization that you're using or the back end that you're using. So for example, you can say pip install AIO cache, but if you want to use Redis, it's bracket Redis. If you want to use Redis and memcached, you might say, you know, bracket Redis, memcached. They have message pack and different formatting. So depending on how you're using it, you might have to install some dependencies, okay? The, the optional install mechanism of uh, pip is pretty cool though. So I like that. It is, it is pretty cool. Uh, so you just import async IO, easy, and then you in, import AO cache, and you got to you know just basically run run your loop somewhere. Or if you're using something like Fast API, just that thing's generating or managing the, the loop for you, so you don't have to worry about it. So you can just say await cache dot set key comma value await cache dot get key. Sounds pretty straightforward, right? You yeah. can even use it as a decorator. So if you put at cache on a function. You can give it time to live, the target, which is Redis, um, the key to use uh, for that particular thing, and so on. And then off it goes. The serializer, you have pickles, or you have message pack, or JSON, and then there you go. Pretty cool, huh? So does it, okay, so for a function, does it cache the, the input and output of that function then? I think it caches the output. Okay. But it doesn't, it doesn't look like it varies okay. by... Um, at least in this example, so, it's not very. At least, the, yeah, and I don't see how okay. you would uh, like this key is the lookup value, right? So you might yeah. call that cache call key result or something. Um, I don't see yeah, how you, can, you dynamically do that. It's got to be right. like a void. But you know, a lot of times that's you just like show me all the products in this right database exactly. or whatever. Right? So, yeah. yeah, yeah, cool, cool, yeah, pretty neat, huh? Um, yeah, very neat. Yeah, and then you have different three basic ideas to think about. You have these back ends, so. You have Redis backed by AIO Redis. You have Memcache backed by AIO Memcache. And then serializers, like you can serialize to string, pickle, JSON, message pack, but you can also build your own. And then you can also plug in. There's a bunch of examples and documentation people can check out. So this looks really neat to me. Yeah, it, nice. It's not quite something that I need, but if I did need it, I would definitely go. I know. And, I'd, and I'd be all over it. Yeah. Um, regarding the level of... Uh... A level of detail we have in our podcast. SE Steve says, uh, I only listen to podcasts about APIs. <laughs> nice. Uh, nice, so. nice. What's your last one, Brian? My last one is, uh, well, the Python packaging project. 
packaging Python project. Same thing. No, I, I have a new one, but I got it from this. So when I was reading this article or this uh, tutorial again, I came across something I wasn't familiar with. So I had to go check it out. So down with uh, creating a PyProject.toml, one of the options is Hatchling. Um, have you Hatchling. heard of Hatchling? Yeah, have I've you heard, heard of, of this? Hatch. Is this somehow related to Hatch? Yeah, it is Hatch. So did have we already covered Hatch? Hatchling. No, I don't think we have here, but I love the idea of it. Okay, so so Hatch is a modern extensible Python project manager with a whole bunch of cool features like a standardized build systems, build system and reproducible builds by default, um, and environment management, which you know, okay. So, so I'm not sure if this is similar to Poetry's environment manager or not. I haven't played with it much, but um, but you don't actually have to care, which is nice because Poetry you have to care about it because that's part of the whole thing. Uh, anyway, um, publishing is easy uh, to PyPI and other sources. Version management, uh, project generation with sane def- defaults, which I haven't tried that, so I want to try that. And supposedly a responsive CLI that's two to three times faster. Than equivalent tools. So this I definitely need to try. So this is, um, nice. I would think it's similar on the line of flit, uh, I think, um, uh, but with some extra things thrown in. Because And one of the reasons why I love flit now is because even though setup tools does now support PyProject Toml properly, completely, flit's like twice as fast for building stuff. But, uh, but so I, I definitely want to try out Hatch and try this. I did try one little small project, just converting a flit project to Hatch. And it took me like five minutes just using the, the documentation here is great. So the ex, excellent documentation here about how to use the different pieces of it. So it's pretty neat. Have you tried it? I have not tried it. I've looked at it and it, it looks neat to me. And, and I, I don't make many packages. I <laughs> more build applications and web apps and stuff. Oh, yeah. and so I, okay. I'm less in the, what's the right tool to build packages properly, you know, and I, I know you're doing that a little bit more. So yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm so learning from you. I guess good mix. I do more packages and less applications, and you do more applications. So yeah, uh, some live feedback. Henry Schreiner says you can use any PEP six two one backend Hatchling PDM Flit Core and so on with Hatch or with PDM two. One of the fantastic results of standardization, and that Hatchling does a much better job of getting source files right than Flit Core. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, there's a, there's a, there was a lot of cool options with uh, the hatch that you could specify exactly which modules and packages to pick up if you need to. That's one of the things that's a little bit mysterious with Flit, um, how to figure it out, because it, it just sort of knows uh, somehow. I think it's mm-hmm. uh, uh, the, the stuff that's in Git, but um, it's interesting. So I, the main thing is, is I really like, with the standardization, that hatch is possible, that Flit's possible, that PDM is possible, that we can do new things uh and they're not that different like uh the it's kind of the back end of packaging and the front end is the pyproject.toml uh that's a better world to be in so yeah that separation lets lets there be a lot more yeah exploration a lot more variation yep all right well that's it for our items isn't it i think so yeah you got any extras uh <laughs> no but hopefully i will soon so i've got something i'm working oh, right on yeah. Yes, I know. I, I think I know what you're alluding to. Very exciting stuff coming quite soon. Yeah. How about you? I have I have one extra. This one's quick, but quite cool. So I'm sitting here on my MacBook Pro with the M1, you know, MacBook Pro, the M1 Max. And until recently, I wasn't able to use PyPy. Now, PyPy is the JIT compiled 
often faster version of Python. Sometimes you'll hear people say PyPy when they are referring to PyPI, but all the people who work on PyPI pronounce it that way. And it leaves space for PyPy to be pronounced like it should. So PyPy is the fast JIT compiled version of Python. And the big news is it a couple of weeks ago, they announced support for M1, which is pretty cool. So if you're on Apple Silicon, you can now use PyPy. That's very cool. Natively. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it uh, was done by Fajal and um, supported by contributions from the Open Collective, which is pretty cool. And it's based on support for ARCH64, which is ARM64 and Linux, with some variations on how this works. So they've got 3.8 and 3.9 working on macOS ARM64 platform, which is pretty cool. So if you're using that and you've been waiting for this, it should make your code run faster, maybe use less memory, that kind of thing. Very cool. Um, if people are interested in PyPy, uh, testing code on episode 190, I interviewed uh, Carl Frederick Bowles about testing PyPy. So oh, cool. Good episode. Yeah, there's a lot of testing. I mean, it's the entire Python runtime, basically. It's like in much of the standard library. That's a lot of work. Yeah, it's an interesting story. So, yeah. Would you say that testing and documentation are often really good things to add to your project that go along together in some ways? Well, hopefully you're doing it at the same time, but yes. Yes. You know, we've all worked with different types of team dynamics, the sort of flat hierarchy. People would just take over the projects, the parts of the projects that they seem best suited for. And there might be more hierarchical <laughs> versions. So our joke this week is about a somewhat dominate, a dominating uh, senior developer here. And there's a junior developer just hired onto the team. The, you know, this is a picture. People can check it out. I'll just follow the link in the show notes. The junior asks, where's the documentation? In a very stern face, the team says, I am the documentation. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Hopefully you're not currently working in this situation, but it's pretty funny. <laughs> you know, there's always bits. There's always pieces of the system that like, well, well how does this work? Oh, you've got to ask that guy. He's not even on our team before anymore. Yeah, but he's the one that wrote it. Uh, and luckily, he's still with the company. So go talk to him. Exactly. No one understands it. We don't touch it anymore. It seems to still work. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Nice. All right. Well, what seems to still be working is our podcast, Brian. It does. Thanks for being here. Yeah. Thanks you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. Thanks for everyone to listen. See y'all later. Bye. <laughs>